from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. This week's podcast will be on the current case of Lindsay Clancy and the overall diagnosis of postpartum psychosis, which clearly needs discussion. So let's begin. Lindsay Marie Musgrove was born in 1990 in Wallingford, Connecticut. Her parents are Mike and Paula and all of their neighbors in their quiet and cozy area who have been interviewed gave nearly the same statement that they were a great family, always described as good and nice people and appeared to be a close family. I wasn't immediately able to find whether or not she had any siblings, though for the purpose of this story, it doesn't really matter. I found people stating she was a cheerleader in high school or was a talented gymnast, but the consensus is that she was quite athletic and energetic. She graduated high school, went on to earn a bachelor's degree in biology in 2012 at 22 years old, and then went on to work as a nursing assistant at South Shore Hospital in Massachusetts. She then went on to be a labor and delivery nurse at Massachusetts General Hospital. At some point, she met and eventually married Patrick Clancy, and he has openly stated that their marriage was a happy one. He wrote in a statement on the GoFundMe site that, for him, it was love at first sight. He knew very quickly that she was the one for him. He wrote about how very affectionate they were with each other and how much she absolutely loved her job. There was no discord or unhappiness outside of normal marital ups and downs indicated. Lindsay's friends all described her as compassionate, supportive, kind, patient, loving, and selfless, an excellent nurse, and just a ray of sunshine. So all seemed good. The couple went on to have three children, a daughter they named Cora in 2017, then their son Dawson, born in 2019, and finally Callan last summer in 2022. 
just weeks after Callan was born, Lindsay had written in Facebook posts that she had struggled with postpartum depression or anxiety, quote, in the past, and I personally take that to mean with her previous pregnancies, but that she was feeling dialed in, as she said now, and that focusing on exercise, nutrition, and a positive mindset had been what helped her. Lindsay was known to keep a journal of her daily activities, and in those, she spoke about her mental health, the mental state she had been in for the day, and what types of medication she was taking at the time. It was said that her writing in her journals was clear and concise, that the thoughts she shared through the sentences were normal, progressive, and so on. Nowhere in her journals did she admit to or share concern for her thoughts becoming confused or disjointed. She didn't mention anything about hallucinations or disordered thoughts at all. So this past December, Lindsay admitted to her husband that she was having intrusive thoughts of harming their children. She began saying that she wished she could feel something that she had been unable to express any happiness or sadness or even cry. And that completely empty feeling is something I am well versed in, so I utterly understand that statement. On January 1st, Lindsay voluntarily checked herself into a mental health facility to try to get some help. Four days later, she was discharged. Now, some sources state that the biggest reason for her release was because her insurance wouldn't cover any more of her stay. Now, guys, listen, my nine to five is in this industry. I fight insurance companies to try to make them pay for people's medical costs. I mean, honestly, it is positively disgusting how much they try to get out of having to pay for. But I digress. She was discharged and she went back home. A few days later, when asked how she was feeling, she said that she was okay and that she was no longer having thoughts of harming her children. In an internet article written for The Post, they reported that Lindsay was on leave from her job again as a labor and delivery nurse and had begun attending, quote, a very intensive five-day-a-week program for postpartum depression trying to get help, end quote. Her husband, Patrick, was, quote, working from home instead of going into work to be able to try and support her daily, the Post reported. I also happened to see in a couple of obscure sources that indicated there was also a part-time nanny hired to help with the children, but I could not concretely confirm this. A, quote, Clancy nanny was mentioned by their pastor regarding the funeral for the children. Regardless, Lindsay was assessed and it was stated that she did not have postpartum depression. What she was diagnosed with was generalized anxiety disorder. So here is the timeline of events as accurate as I could put together with the somewhat limited information released as this case just happened. On this past January 3rd, She entered into her journal that she was having a, quote, touch of postpartum anxiety around returning to work, end quote. At this time, she was only taking three different prescribed medications. 
I wasn't able to find exactly which ones, but to give you some reference, I take four, two of which are mental health related. The next day, she took five-year-old Cora to a pediatrician appointment, returned back home, then played with Cora and three-year-old Dawson outside in the snow. They built a snowman together, and Lindsay texted pictures of this to her husband, who was working from home, in the basement, as well as her mother. All seemed fine. Just after 4 p.m., Lindsay searched children's Miralax on her phone. For those that might not know, Miralax is advertised as a gentle laxative for children to, you know, help them go to the bathroom, if you will. A few minutes later, she searched for takeout from the 3V restaurant and, more importantly, how long it took to drive there. About a half hour later, she searched for CVS on her phone, called them, and asked if they carried Miralax. When that call was over, she texted Patrick, still working in the basement, and asked him if he would like to go pick up food that she hadn't cooked, that it had been a long day. He said yes. At 5.10 p.m., she called 3V and placed the order for their dinner that Patrick would be going to get. Five minutes later, Patrick left the house to stop by CVS to pick up the medication for one of the children and pick up the food. He was at CVS at 5.32 p.m., arrived at 3V at 5.54, and was back home by just after 6. He was gone for barely over 45 minutes. In that time, the unthinkable happened. It is said that he came into the house and didn't see anyone at first. Patrick then made his way upstairs and found what I assumed was their bedroom door to be shut and locked. He entered the room and again, I assume by means of, you know, perhaps that tiny key that comes with many interior doorknobs with locks, but regardless, he entered the room and noticed blood on the floor and an open window. I don't know if it was exactly then that he called 911 or if it was after he ran outside to find his wife on the ground, but he called 911. Lindsay had slit her wrists and jumped from the second-story bedroom window, but was still alive. Patrick asked her where the children were, to which she replied that they were in the basement. It was said that he replied, quote, what have you done? And ran to check on the children. When he got to the basement, he found all three children with exercise bands tied around their little necks. Sources say he was screaming and begging the children to breathe as he frantically untied the bands from their throats. But it was too late. Cora and Dawson were pronounced dead later at the hospital. Little eight-month-old Callan died two days later. Lindsay was taken to the hospital where she survived her injuries, but is said to be paralyzed from the waist down. Now, the prosecution has said that that isn't true, that she is speaking and can move her legs, but all other information points to her being paralyzed, so we will have to wait and see. 
The day after the baby died, sources say Lindsay pointed toward a small whiteboard and wrote on it, quote, Do I need an attorney? She had been assigned a clinician to begin evaluating her mental state, and after a bit, Lindsay used her clinician's phone to call Patrick and tell him that she had heard a male voice tell her to kill the children. It was only after speaking with the clinician that the term postpartum psychosis was put on the table. She is being charged with two counts of first-degree murder, three counts of strangulation and suffocation, and three counts of assault with a deadly weapon. Patrick has asked the public to forgive his wife. Now, the prosecution appears to be building a case around the amount of prescription medications they feel that she was on to the point of over-medication. Thirteen different medications was the number thrown around, and I found the names of ten of them from a video that Dr. Grande did on this subject. Ten of the medications were Prozac, which is an antidepressant, amitriptyline, also an antidepressant, Seroquel, which does give us a glimpse into something more serious because this medication is commonly prescribed for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, sudden episodes of mania or depression that are associated with bipolar disorder, so there is that. We also have trazodone, which is an antidepressant and sedative, remeron, which is an antidepressant, Lamictal, which is prescribed to help control actual seizures in people and to also help with bipolar disorder. Clonopin, which is used to help control seizures, but is also prescribed for panic disorder and anxiety. Ativan, which is usually prescribed for anxiety. And Valium, which is also usually prescribed for anxiety. There was also Benadryl in there, which has a sedative effect. There are three more that I couldn't find, but I think we get the picture. The problem with the prosecution's argument of her being over-medicated is that she was actually not on all of these all at once. Now, of course, I'm not her doctor, but having studied this nearly all of my life, on top of my own, you know, broken mind, these medications would have been prescribed at different times. Let's say she went to her doctor complaining of feeling anxious or depressed after having Callan. She would have been prescribed one or perhaps two of these and sent home to take them for a period of time. She would have been instructed to communicate after that period of time how she was feeling. My rather educated guess is that she said they were not working for her, so the medications were changed. And this is entirely typical for these situations. An antidepressant might work brilliantly for one person and not another. I'll use myself as a perfect example, okay? I've been on Prozac for years, guys, since I was 24 years old. After a while, I felt that it wasn't working as well, and my doctor changed me over to Wellbutrin. Kids, when I tell you that Wellbutrin made me violent, I'm not even a little bit exaggerating. I remember one particular episode where I was just pacing around just like a wild animal about to have a meltdown. I could feel it rising. 
A friend asked me what was wrong and was trying to calm me down, and it was absolutely everything I had not to start swinging. I was blind with rage. I called my doctor that day, and I was changed back to Prozac, and then all was well. Doctors changing medications is completely common and quite necessary to help people get the relief they so desperately need. Tweaking doses or changing types is normal. When she murdered her children, she was only on three prescribed medications, but again, I couldn't find out exactly which three. For someone suffering with mental illness, three is not even close to odd. It's very, very typical. So on this side of the coin, we see a mother who openly recognized she wasn't feeling right, expressed those feelings on social media, to her family and friends, and willingly took all acceptable steps to get help. She checked herself into an inpatient facility, was actively in an intensive outpatient treatment plan, taking the medications she was prescribed, she actively sought out help. Her lovely husband began working from home so that he could be there to help her. Again, there are some whispers that there was a part-time nanny to help with the children, too. I don't see a whole lot more that could have been done under these circumstances. I mean, sure, hindsight is twenty-twenty, but really put yourself in this situation. She was open and honest, followed the steps, got help. Now... On the other side of the coin, she was of her right mind enough to look up how long the trip from home to CVS to the restaurant and back was. She was clear-headed enough to figure out just how long Patrick would be gone. She stated herself that she was feeling quite anxious about going back to work. There is at least some level of premeditation that could be inferred here, right? And even though she was honest about how she was feeling, never once did she tell anyone about this male voice that was telling her to kill her children until after she spoke with the clinician. And, side note, I am not putting any blame on the clinician, okay? They were hired to assess her mental state. That's it. So, what do we think? You know, it's a tough one. And this case is similar to other ones we know about, such as Andrea Yates, who was also a nurse. She suffered from postpartum psychosis. After her first baby, during the postpartum healing, she began having visions of a knife and thoughts of stabbing someone. She also said she had visions of Satan speaking to her, and yet at the time, she told no one. After her fourth child... Her postpartum depression was intense and, like any other time, she kept it to herself, slapping on the plastic smile to appease anyone who might think she was anything other than perfect. There was some overly religious things going on in her personal life as well, where the preacher was telling her that she was a wicked and evil woman, so there is that. In June 1999, Andrea began to crack. She called her husband at work and told him he needed to come home. So he left his job, got home, and found her chewing on her fingers, not just biting her nails, and she was shaking all over. She looked at him and simply said, I need help. 
Then the next morning, she tried to commit suicide by taking an overdose of medication. Finally realizing something was very wrong, she was admitted to a local hospital where it was said that she had suffered a nervous breakdown, diagnosed with major depressive disorder, and was prescribed antidepressant medications, including Zoloft. She was released after about a week's time and sent home. It was later said that she was sent home after only a week because, again, the insurance would not pay for any more days. Oh, my God, do not get me started with fucking insurance. So her religious leader didn't believe in medication, so she stopped taking it. She began ripping her hair out, leaving these bald spots, and she dug at her own skin, leaving painful sores. She started hallucinating again and begged her husband to let her kill herself while holding a knife to her neck. She was again hospitalized, diagnosed with postpartum psychosis, and given medications such as Effexor and Wellbutrin with the inclusion of Haldol. Now, Haldol is no joke. This medication is used to treat certain mental or mood disorders. It is an antipsychotic. The medication is supposed to help the person think more clearly, feel less nervous, and make everyday life more, well, tolerable. Now, her psychiatrist told both her and her husband that they should absolutely not have any more children, that if Andrea were to have another baby, it would, quote, guarantee future psychotic depression, end quote. And yet, she was pregnant again after only seven weeks from being discharged from the hospital. So, of course, she stopped taking her medications during her pregnancy and gave birth to their final child and only daughter, Mary, in 2000. Her husband, and don't get me started on him either, defended their decision to have another baby like this. He said, if you had a brand new Mercedes-Benz offered to you, completely free of charge, but you had to be sick with the flu for two weeks, would you do it? Disgusting, okay? He said that he knew full well that Andrea was sick, but that, you know, after she had the baby, she could simply go back on the medications and all would be well. Needless to say, it didn't go well. A few months after giving birth to Mary, Andrea just could not take it and started to completely shut down. She had even stopped feeding her new baby. She was rushed to a treatment center where she stayed for two months. The psychiatrist put her back on medication again before she was released in April of 2001. But again, she stopped taking her medication, regressed, and was in a, quote, near catatonic state and had filled the bathtub with water, intending to drown her children, but she decided not to. She told no one. Still, she was hospitalized again in May and released again. The doctor had said that Andrea was to be supervised at all times with the children. Her husband had made arrangements for his mother to come to the house and there was only going to be an hour lapse in between. So, of course, during that one hour, Andrea would commit one of the most heinous acts any human could do. She filled the bathtub up, picked up three-and-a-half-year-old Paul, drowned him, and put him on her bed. She then went and got two-year-old Luke and pushed him down in the water and killed him, also placing him on the same bed. 
Then she got five-and-a-half-year-old John and drowned him, putting his lifeless body with his brother's. She moved on to six-month-old Mary, left her infant body in the water when she moved on to seven-year-old Noah. Mary's body was put in John's arms, and she left Noah in the tub. She called the police, and she told them she needed a police officer. The 911 operator, due to Andrea not being able to really even answer her questions, began to ask her if someone was standing beside her, not letting her say anything, but Andrea said no, that she just wanted a police officer. The operator asked if she needed an ambulance, and at first she said no, but then she said yes to go ahead and send one. She admitted that she was ill. Once she got off the phone with 911, she called her husband at work and told him he needed to come home quickly, that something was wrong with all of the children. The police came and escorted her out the back of the house. Once at the station, she gave a full confession. She said that she had waited for her husband to leave because she knew he would not have let her harm the children. When asked why, she basically said she wanted to save her children from hell. She said, quote, It's better to tie a stone around your neck and throw yourself in the sea than to cause a little one to stumble. End quote. You see, she believed she was a daughter of Eve, that she was inherently wicked, doomed, and that she had been too lenient with her children, and thus they were going to grow up to be wicked. She said that she believed, since she killed them while they were little, God would receive them. Although the defense's expert testimony agreed that Yates was psychotic, a jury rejected the insanity defense and found her guilty. The prosecution had wanted her to receive the death sentence. She was given life in prison. She was given a new trial due to some false testimony, and in 2006, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity and was ultimately placed in the Kerrville State Hospital in Kerrville, Texas. Carol Coronado is another example. Though she had looked forward to being a mother, her sister being interviewed said she was in love with her babies, that she had suffered with postpartum depression after her first two pregnancies with her daughters and yet she was not treated for it either time. For whatever reason, she and her husband had their three daughters back to back. Her friends and family described her as being kind and loving to the babies and mostly only complained about being tired, which any mother would tell you that having small children can be exhausting. And on top of being a wife and a mother of three very small girls, she was trying to finish her bachelor's degree as well. She wanted to be able to better her family situation, which was financially strained. She had begun looking at putting the girls into daycare so that she could possibly work and work on her degree, but things didn't go as she had planned. The days leading up to her unfortunate actions her husband and loved ones noticed she was acting strange. She had randomly gone outside and shut off all of the electricity to the house. 
The day before the incident, she had physically assaulted her husband, and in an interview, he said she was most assuredly not a violent person whatsoever. Witnesses state that her face looked just different, that her eyes were dilated, and she just didn't look like herself. The morning of the murders, her husband said she was acting quite strange since the moment they woke up. She woke up screaming and saying crazy things. This is according to him. He said he didn't know how to handle it or what to do, so he called her mother. Carol, too, was continuously trying to call her mother for help, but her mother was a school bus driver and simply could not answer her phone. She was driving a bus full of children. I mean, end of discussion, you know. She left voicemail after voicemail, sounding frantic and scared, saying she was nervous, she couldn't sleep, and so on, just pleading for help. So that afternoon, Carol's husband was doing some mechanic work at the home on a vehicle, and he stated he left to go quickly pick up some auto parts. While he was gone, Carol's mother, who was finally off work and had heard the voicemails, went to her daughter's house and went inside. She found Carol completely naked, holding a knife with blood on her body. She asked Carol if she was okay. She observed all three children dressed and laying on the bed, and at first she believed them to be asleep. She reached out carefully and hugged Carol as Carol told her it had not been a good day. So as Carol's mother fully began to grasp what had happened, Carol's husband returned. So her mother began screaming and telling him not to go in the house, but he entered anyway, and he found that Carol had stabbed to death their three young daughters, two-and-a-half-year-old Sophia, 16-month-old Yasmin, and three-month-old Xenia. As he came to the realization that his wife had murdered his babies, he and her mother watched as she backed herself into a corner like an animal, holding the knife out, saying, quote, Come on, come on. Her mother stated she was slowly waving her hands over her babies as if drawing energy from them or something. I don't really know quite how to describe it, but she then lifted up her left breast, placed the knife below it, and stabbed herself, rupturing the sack around her heart. When taken to the hospital for treatment, witnesses stated it was obvious that she hadn't been eating enough, that she was terribly thin, was nearly catatonic and nonverbal, and it appeared she had not slept in about a week. Her mother was able to visit her in the hospital, and she asked Carol what had happened with her that would allow her to murder her own children, to which Carol replied that she had heard voices but was very reluctant to speak any further about the voices. However, what is interesting about this situation is that Carol's mother was interviewed and she said that she had the same thing happen to her during her pregnancy, that voices had told her to murder her children, but that she had had control to not act on those instructions. And yes, there is a genetic component that we will get into in just a minute. So Carol was charged with three counts of first-degree murder. Her husband, just like Patrick, said that his wife had absolutely loved their daughters and that this was not her, that he forgave her, stood behind her 100% and asked for forgiveness. 
During her trial, she had to be physically removed from the courtroom because she had these crazy outbursts. She was found guilty of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to three life sentences in prison. So let's get into the science behind this, right? According to the NHS, quote, postpartum psychosis is a serious mental health illness that can affect someone soon after having a baby. It affects around one in 500 mothers after giving birth. Postpartum psychosis is very different from the baby blues. It's a serious mental illness and should be treated as a medical emergency. Symptoms usually start suddenly within the first two weeks after giving birth, often within hours or days of giving birth. More rarely, they can develop several weeks after the baby is born. Symptoms include hallucinations, as in hearing, seeing, smelling, or feeling things that are not there or do not exist. Also delusions, which are often thoughts or beliefs that are quite unlikely to be true. Some experience a manic mood, talking or thinking too much or too quickly, feeling high or on top of the world. Some also experience a low mood, showing signs of depression, being withdrawn or tearful, lacking energy, having a loss of appetite, anxiety, agitation, or trouble sleeping. Sometimes they experience both a manic and low mood or even rapidly cycling between manic and low. There is a loss of inhibitions, feeling suspicious or fearful, restlessness, feeling of intense confusion, and displaying very out-of-character behaviors. It can get worse rapidly, and the illness can risk the safety of the mother and baby. An article written for the American Journal of Medical Genetics states, quote, and stick with me, a number of lines of evidence point to the possible involvement of estrogen pathways in the pathophysiology of bipolar disorder in general and postpartum psychosis in particular. There is strong evidence from clinical, follow-up, and genetic studies to support the hypothesis that most cases of postpartum psychosis are manifestations of an affective disorder diathesis or tendency to suffer with a postpartum trigger and that genes influence susceptibility to both diathesis and trigger. The nature of the trigger is unknown, but in view of the abrupt onset at a time of major physiological change, it is widely believed that biological, probably hormonal mechanisms are of paramount importance with estrogen receiving the most attention to date. Now that's a lot of top shelf words, right? But basically what it is saying is that there is some evidence that postpartum psychosis is possibly a complicated mix of the very real roller coaster of hormone fluctuations right after a woman gives birth, as well as a genetic factor involving the disordered physiological processes associated with bipolar disorder in general. Women run a higher risk of postpartum psychosis if they have had a prior history of mental health problems or if there has been a family history of postpartum psychosis, which we heard about in the case with Carol and her mother. Disturbed sleep patterns also play a role. 
A woman might have a higher risk if she has bipolar disorder type 1 or schizoaffective disorder, a previous postpartum psychosis, or a history of postpartum psychosis in a close relative, as we've heard before. So, for example, if there is no prior history of mental illness and no family history of postpartum psychosis, the chances of a brand new mother developing it is 0.1% or 1 in 1,000. If a woman has no history of mental illness, but her mother or sister developed postpartum psychosis, the woman's chances of developing it go up to 3% or 3 in 100. Then this is where it gets interesting, guys. If the new mother has a history of bipolar disorder type 1 or schizoaffective disorder, but there is no family history of any of this, the new mother's chances of developing postpartum psychosis skyrocket to 20% or 1 in 5. If this same mother's own mother or sister had postpartum psychosis, then her chance jumps to 50%. Now, this begs the question of the correlation between bipolar disorder type 1 and postpartum psychosis. The National Institutes of Mental Health describe bipolar 1 as, quote, defined by manic episodes that last for at least seven days, nearly every day for most of the day, or by manic symptoms that are so severe that the person needs immediate medical care. Usually, depressive episodes occur as well, typically lasting at least two weeks. Episodes of depression with mixed features or having depressive symptoms and manic symptoms at the same time are also possible. Experiencing four or more episodes of mania or depression within one year is called rapid cycling. Women with a diagnosis of bipolar simply are at a higher risk of developing postpartum psychosis. Schizoaffective disorder is a mental health disorder that is marked by a combination of schizophrenia symptoms, such as hallucinations or delusions, and mood disorder symptoms, such as depression or mania. Bipolar disorder and schizoaffective disorder have symptoms in common. So schizoaffective disorder may involve manic or depressive episodes occurring with psychotic features. Meanwhile, Bipolar disorders typically involve depressive episodes with manic or hypomanic episodes. The consensus is that evidence from studies of women with a history of bipolar disorder, longitudinal studies of women with postpartum episodes of psychosis, and family studies support a link between postpartum psychosis and bipolar disorder. So you guys can take that information as you will. Because this is such an extremely rare occurrence, it poses difficulties in properly studying. Now, do you want my personal opinion on this? Well, I must first say that I'm not an expert on this particular phenomenon, as I might consider myself more so in other areas. But here are my thoughts, and they are my observations only complete transparency and that I have not dug too deeply into the history of postpartum psychosis prior to, say, the boomer generation, okay? But what I think is that we have moved toward a societal norm where a mother is expected to be independently, well, perfect. 
Prior generations, families lived close to each other. The mother's mother would come and help with the babies, or people were close with their neighbors, and there were other sets of hands to help pick up some of the demands on the new mothers. Mothers, for the most part, didn't have to work outside of the home. They were able to have, you know, some control over the home, you know, sleep schedules, house routines, less distractions such as current technologies, and trying to keep up with the Joneses as they say and so on. I think you know what I'm getting at. It seems that mothers, really starting after the boomers and really with my generation, Generation X, that there is an increase in pressure on new moms to be able to show just how very quickly they were able to bounce back from pregnancy, how quickly they could return to the careers they had while also striving to climb that corporate ladder. They are expected by greater society to handle house and home, career, staying active socially, be the perfect wife, lose that pregnancy way quickly, and all of this while maintaining a pleasant smile that showing weakness, let alone a desperate need for serious help, is perhaps not frowned upon, but definitely not preferred. Let's say that. Now again, I don't want to diminish any woman's struggles as a new mom from any generation, as I'm sure any period in human history, motherhood, and let's not forget the fathers, it's a hard job no matter what angle you came at this topic from. I do think that Andrea and Carol suffered from clinical postpartum psychosis. The timing of their murders is in correlation to how recently they had had their newborns. The signs and symptoms they displayed were all in line with this. But what do I think of Lindsay's case? I think that she admitted she was having issues just weeks after having her baby, and that fits the criteria. I think she actively and willingly sought out help for how she was feeling several times. I think her doctor prescribed medications to help her and modified those medications too, as I said, you know, tweak the doses or kinds to try to find the right combination for her to get some relief. I do not believe the reports that she was on 13 medications the night that she murdered her children. I do sense some premeditation as she did time how long her husband would be gone that early evening, knowing she was going to kill her babies. But if she was truly having delusions or hallucinations, then premeditation is, well, explainable. She voluntarily checked herself into a mental health facility and, once discharged, she continued to seek treatment in an intensive outpatient treatment program. There is just the one thing for me in that the medical research all says this occurs either very soon after the birth of the baby or maybe as long as a few weeks and then it gets resolved. But Callan was eight months old, which is pretty far well past the time frame for postpartum psychosis to begin. But this is still a very new, fresh, and very raw case that we still don't have all of the information on just yet. So some of the information I have presented may have more explanation as more information comes forward about Lindsay and what happened. These are just my thoughts with regards to the limited information we have now as of this recording. Bless her children and her husband, Patrick. So tell me, guys, what do you think? 
You can leave me a comment. I can't really reply to them, but you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. I have my contact information in the notes, but most importantly, guys, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thanks guys and have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.